watchers in the fourth dimension. Bearing of the garden, sir. And where, for heaven's sake, is Sergeant Benson? Hello, and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And you'll serve me, Crassus, and you'll like it. This episode, we're at the end of yet another season as the entire unit family returns in the Time Monster. Before we get into it, though, Riley's diligently been compiling the mail over the last couple of weeks and is going to give us some of the highlights. Over to you, Riley. Thank you. The Curse of Peladon. We had a couple people writing about that, one of them being Darren Walker, who says, I love The Curse of Peladon. Brilliant story. It also sets up the fourth Doctor's joke in Destiny of the Daleks about Arcturus winning the Galactic Olympic Games. I'm sure we look forward to catching that joke five years now, eight years. How long does it take us to get there? About two, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. Troy Hunter, based on our commentary that the Third Doctor is more enjoyable, said that Alpha Centauri is the only <clears throat> dick in this one. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. And Dave Columbus says, I think this is one of the highlights of the Pertwee era, and for Katie Manning, had everything you could want in a Doctor Who story. And though Pertwee isn't my favorite Doctor, he certainly had some great stories. This one shows what good writing will do for a companion. Just a shame there wasn't more of it for her. Moving on to the Sea Devils, J.M. Casey says that Malcolm Clark said that this score was, quote, a fight with the Delaware. We are all familiar with the Delaware from our musical special. J.M. Casey goes on to describe the Delaware, the synth the BBC had bought, which they used to do the music and much of the special sound for the story. Considering he'd be back in 10 years to do the score for Earthshock, which is highly regarded with good reason, I think I forgive him for this one so hard to believe you guys all think the Silurians music is worse but hey well I guess that's a difference of opinion <laughs> bad memories for Julie <laughs> Keith Burton says really enjoyed the podcast as always I'm glad you highlighted how the master manipulated Trenchard who was an idiot albeit a well-intentioned one Malcolm Hulk's wonderful novelization depicts Trenchard's death and it's especially poignant he confronts the sea devils but accidentally he leaves the safety catch on so his gun doesn't fire and the sea devils kill him Touchingly, when the doctor examines Trenchard's body, he clicks the safety catch off so the records will show that he died a hero. Oh, nice touch. That's a really yeah, nice yeah. touch. It is. Kieran James Evans says, Opinions on this one probably depend on how you rate Silurians. I think I like it more than the gang do, so I rate this one not quite as high in return. I still like it, and it is much more fun than Silurians with the master in there. Also, it is shorter. <laughs> Malcolm Clark's score is interesting. Okay, yes, that's true. <laughs> I think I prefer his version of the Master's hypnotizing theme over Deadly's. <gasps> what? Yeah, a slight disagreement on that one. Astrazon Dangelbert Zebulon. Yes. Ask for it by name. Exactly. <laughs> says, I've always seen the Sea Devils as the start to Pertwee's pinnacle from here to season 11, with the Time Monster as an embarrassing exception. What? That's what we're talking about today. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right. And John Harwood says the Sea Devils is the one story everyone from my generation remembers. This may not be unconnected with it being repeated twice. And that makes a lot of sense. And then Alan Seiler says, one of my favorite Pertwee stories, for all the reasons the Watchers team points out, mainly it's the Silurians, which I loved with improvements. I have to disagree on two points, though. First, I absolutely love the Sea Devil costumes. I think they're gorgeous and are my second favorite <laughs> alien design in the Pertwee era. My favorite will be coming up next season. And I think the score is daring, boundary pushing and exciting. 
though I will admit that it does take the viewer by surprise at first and take some getting used to. I give this one nine little net dresses out of ten. <laughs> that was Terrence Dix's description was little net dresses. Little net dresses. Yes. Also, is this the first time that all four of you gave a story the exact same score? And info from Anthony is that no, that is not the first time. The first time was we all four gave the Space Pirates 1.5. <laughs> it deserved it. And I looked this name up to try to pronounce it. So I'm giving my best shot. My apologize ahead of time. Alex Kafzoglu says, great episode. Love that Biggs from Star Wars gets a mention, especially as he turns up in the very next story. Although conversely, because it then puts me in a Star Wars mood, I was disappointed that the Sea Fort Workman was described as budget 1970s Nick Frost <laughs> rather than a budget 1970s Jabba the Hutt that he really was. Loving the podcast, especially as you are now beginning to appreciate the third doctor. Couple more to go. Blue Box Charm says this serial and Day of the Dogs are the reason a friend of mine who used to roleplay the third doctor online and journal chose the username Hydeo Sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> I love Joe in this one. Also, headcanon accepted. Peladon gave her the never gets dirty fabric for that suit. Beardo Beatnik says a lovely cheesy low budget fun romp i have always loved the utter cheap but effective looking sea devils i give it seven trippy tv puppets out of ten i like it and finally dave columbus says along with doubling for katie manning in her white pantsuits climbing up the sea fort ladder Stuart fell was also the shortest sea devil he also was the one who did that front flip after getting shot <laughs> nice <laughs> I am enjoying the third doctor a bit more after he's finally milled out a bit. Nicer to Joe, nicer to the military, nicer to the sea devils whom he sentences to genocide when they wouldn't back down with their plan. But, you know, what a guy. But he was nice about it. That's the important thing. He was nice about it. What a guy. You all have to die. Would you like some tea first? You know, got to be polite. Cake or death. <laughs> and that's the mail. Back to you. All right. Thank you, Riley. As a reminder to our listeners, we love getting your feedback, thoughts, comments and questions. And as you've heard, we do try and read them out on the show. So please do get in touch. You can contact us through Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at at Watchers4D or you can email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. Back to the Time Monster and looking behind the scenes on this one. We need to start thinking back to the beginning of the season. Having been impressed with his partnership with Robert Sloman in writing The Demons, producer Barry Letts invited Sloman back to write the very first Dalek serial since season 4's The Evil of the Daleks. And he was commissioned to write a storyline for the season closer, tentatively entitled The Daleks in London. However, if you think back to the episode where we opened the season, Barry Letts and script editor Terence Dix decided that the Daleks would be better used as a hook to start the season. And so they were incorporated into the serial that Louis Marx was working on, which would become known as Day of the Daleks. However, Letts still wanted Sloman to work on season 9 and asked him to develop a different storyline to close out the season with. Letts specifically requested a serial that mixed science fiction and mythology and also asked that the master, unit and a historical setting be included. So just a small laundry list there. <laughs> Sloman promptly got to work on an idea that he called the Time Monster, which is obviously what this one ended up being actually called unusually. Inspiration came to him during a walk outdoors when he heard an airplane flying overhead and was reminded of the sound of German bombers. From this experience, he came up with the idea of time slippages and he envisaged World War I biplanes descending on a modern day aircraft. His scripts were formally commissioned in late December 1971 as a six-parter. 
As Sloman developed his narrative, it was realised that budgetary considerations would prevent the World War I element that he had envisioned from actually featuring. And it was decided to instead emphasise the mythology plot strand to involve Atlantis. Just a side note on Atlantis, in antiquity the city itself was referenced only in two dialogues written by Plato and was likely allegorical in nature rather than a place that anyone at the time genuinely believed to exist. Despite that, the city has really endured in popular folklore and with this, Sloman sought inspiration from Greek mythology. The name Kronos comes from Cronus, the chief of the Titans, who were an elder group of gods that were the progenitors of the more familiar Olympian gods, as per Hesiod's Theogony. Meanwhile, the master was to adopt the pseudonym Professor Thaskalos, with the name being the Greek word for master, apparently. Let's continue to work with Sloman on the serial and was actually an uncredited co-writer, and he saw this as an opportunity to delve into the Doctor's background and motivations. Influenced by his own Buddhist philosophy, Letts wanted to portray the Doctor as being semi-enlightened, so he's able to see the universe more clearly than most, but still possessed a number of personal flaws. These ideas were most prominently reflected in the Doctor's tale of the Hermit on his own planet in Episode 6. Brought back as director for the serial was Paul Bernard, who we had previously seen direct the season opener Day of the Daleks. It was his idea to have the final form of Kronos be that of a young woman. Bringing a little more symmetry to the proceedings, this was also the first time since Day of the Daleks that the unit regulars were featured, and this marks the very last time that all six of our season 8 regulars would feature together. Assigned as designer, we have Tim Gleason making his second and final contribution to the show. He had previously worked on Season 8's Colony in Space. He was responsible, in this case, for designing a new TARDIS interior. The updated set did not impress Barry Letts, who felt that the larger and more stylized roundels resembled washing up bowls. The set was, thankfully, damaged in the break in recording over the summer, and the Time Monster would be its only appearance. Rounding out our creative team, we have the return of Dudley Simpson to provide incidental music after a two-story absence, and Barbara Lane returns providing costumes. She of course had previously worked on Season 3's The War Machines, Season 8's The Claws of Axos, and The Curse of Peladon from earlier in Season 9. The serial itself was broadcast between the 20th of May and the 24th of June 1972. Its final episode brought Season 9 to a close. However, work did not stop there. While filming on the Time Monster wrapped up on the 24th of May, production continued as it was decided that for the first time since season 5, an additional story would be recorded and held over to the next season. That story was Carnival of Monsters, which will go on to be the second story of season 10. More on that in a few episodes time. And with that, we move into our short summary, which I believe is with Julie this time round. Over to you, Julie. Hear me. For in front of the mouth, which you Greeks called the Pillars of Heracles, there lay an island which was larger than Libya and Asia together. Now in this island of Atlantis, there existed a confederation of kings of great and marvelous power, which held sway over all the island. Alas, as the years passed, its power waned until its final king, Dalios, reached the end of his reign. His queen, in her pursuit for prosperity and power, allowed a foreign influence to bring ruin upon them all. Through much deception and assassinations, this master gained control of the crystal of Kronos. During this time, a man named Doctor sought to help our people, but was wrongfully kept in bondage while the horror was unleashed. Once unleashed, Kronos engulfed the entirety of Atlantis, which finally fell into the sea. It is said these foreigners escaped through time in magical boxes, though none can ever know. 
Thus ends the tale of Atlantis, whose end came at the hands of a flying bird god and not the earthquakes as told in tales of old. Nice. Thank you, our muse. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. All right, let's get into it. Episode one. First thing I noticed was, man, synth, welcome back. (laughs) Although it fit, I think, a little bit better and it was trippy AF. The whole intro is trippy AF. (laughs) Yeah, it's a precursor for the weirdness to come. Very much so. The kind of weird I enjoy. I mean, we even kick off weird. We start off with a dream. The doctor's dream with the master being in it. Such a strange way to set off a warning for him where everything else has never been that kind of mystical before. It's usually been science fiction led concepts, but this starts to get all mystic. Yeah, that's definitely Barry Letts' influence here. The dream sequence itself is interesting. I mean, it's got all those explosions, some of which are reused lava effects from Inferno. The glowing crystal, the giant master laughing at the doctor. Uh, It is trippy, but it's really well done, I think. And I have a feeling that the dreams that the master has of the doctor are very different to the (laughs) dreams that the doctor has of him. (laughs) Yes. I'm sure. (laughs) But I also like that as he's kind of waking up, one of his initial thoughts is of Joe. And she's right there with a cup of tea on hand. As all Brits do. Okay, that is one of my favorite parts of this thing because it's such a stupid little joke where she hands him the tea, (laughs) he walks about three feet and then says, thank you, I enjoyed that, and hands it back to her. Doesn't take (laughs) a sip, and yet it's not played sarcastically. It's like, I enjoyed my time with this tea. It's now over. Thank you. It just made me really happy for some stupid reason. The other layer of it is it almost harks back to Terror of the Autons, where he thought she was the tea lady. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. I just love it because it's the also stereotypical thing that if the British people are ever in doubt, have a cup of tea. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Although I love playing to those stereotypes. So, you know. One thing I did not like was her dress. The mm-hmm. brown on yellow or yellow on brown, whichever direction you go, it's not good. That was a bigger <laughs> style back in the day. But she did have matching boots. At least it matched. Yes. I was a little uncertain on the length of the dress given Paul mm. Bernard's prior uh, <laughs> interests in shooting upskirt. Came close, but I personally didn't see anything. Granted, I wasn't looking, but... We'll- get to Atlantis later, but what I will say at this point is the only upskirt I noticed was on Helios. Hippia? Whatever his name was. Hippia. Dude without a shirt. Hippia. Yeah. That's fair. The master. Oh. He has the best accent for about one and a half lines. And then he just kind of gives up. (laughs) Yes. I love his, well, it's another, she's a doctor, so it's Ruth and Stu. And I love Ruth. I think she's a good, strong character. She has some really great feminist lines, which Given the weekend that I had where this one man in front of a thousand people asked one woman one question and one question only, and it was, are you married? So (laughs) I feel for her. I'm going to say this, and I may be alone in this, and I'm okay with that. But whenever her and Stu were interacting by themselves, I got the strongest Garth Marenghi's Dark Place vibes. (laughs) And I think it's because Stu was not a very strong actor, let's say. And just the way that they interacted together, it reminded me of that throughout the entire serial. Which, considering how weird this serial was, there you go. Don, I think I'm with you with that. And what really compounded that for me is I think her feminism was intended 
at the time to be a parody. I think that she was intended to show up the stereotypical angry feminist. Was her haircut also a parody? (laughs) Maybe. It was very just chop wherever. I get that it's probably played that way, but I think it wasn't so over the top as they probably were wanting it to be. I thought it was played fairly well, considering. That's true. I also, this is in my head canon, but I'm pretty sure their master would wind her up constantly and then apologize. So she couldn't really complain. Just a mess with her. Yes. 100%. I don't think that's your headcanon, Don. I think that's... Okay, you think that's real? (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Can we talk about this name, Tom Tit? (laughs) Yes. Well, I don't know what you expect. Jerry Arse was way over the top. They had to bring (laughs) it down a bit. I just... There's a lot of questionable things in here. I mean, there's tits, there's penises, there's a lot of just... I didn't think it was going to be this obvious, and then all of a sudden this happened. It's a thirsty cereal. It really is. (laughs) And there's just things like, was that appropriate in 1972 to call it Tom Tit? <laughs> Probably not. I know. They got away like, with it. There they go. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. Crazy things, man. There's definitely a sense of humor to this story. And continuing my Garth Mergie's dark place, can we talk just for a moment about the window cleaner? Yes. <laughs> he wasn't like there before. It's like he climbs up there, by the way, not using proper setup for his ladder, because that's way too close to the building, just so he could fall off. We never find out his name, and I just wanted them to leave him there, so anytime there was a shot outside, there would be him like that. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't have made the serial any weirder, and it would have made me laugh. So It was a misdirect for me, because here I am, I'm all excited. Name of the serial is the time monster. I'm like, where's the monster? Where's the monster? Where's the monster? And then I see that happen. And then I'm thinking, oh, oh, so he's going to like see something and it's going to affect him and he's going to turn into the monster. No, just there he is on the side of the building. Down. <laughs> I thought that was what was going to happen to Stu. Yeah. Or, or yeah. that. I, mean, still I, mean, like I said, I keep going in different directions. Like, oh, that's going to be the time monster. That's going to be the time monster. Nope. Not at all. It's so bizarre. The real time monster was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> and speaking of friends along the way, the master once again doing his favorite thing in the world, which is controlling some old administrator guy. Yes. <laughs> he loves those guys. He loves them. Because they're very susceptible to it. He yeah. apparently got the job without having to do that. That's the impressive part. Yeah. <laughs> Show up with forged credentials, convince the administrator that you're legit, and then profit. Is this where we have the conversation of how much like groundwork the master did in order to like build things up? Like, how much was his time investment on this one? Three months, four months? So much time putting out <laughs> fake studies that now sit on JSTOR, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so much. We also bring in our unit folks. And when I first saw Yates, I was like, oh no, I don't want a lot of Yates. I want more Benton. And so we do get more Benton. You can say that again. (laughs) We're not there yet. But the first thing they do to Benton is they abuse him and say, you've been on for 48 hours? Guess what? You're still on. I'm like, that's not good, guys. Poor Benton. I was really happy to see the unit folks. I was even happy to see Yates. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. Yeah. I love the unit folks. They're so good. Brigadier Benton, oh, I love what they bring to it. They just add another layer. I like them. Just those in particular. I don't need the other unit guys. <laughs> oh, come on. Osgood was great. I'm fine with the unit guys. Just don't give me the 10-minute gun fights. <laughs> that's all. Now, yeah. 
Given those character moments, I'm totally fine with that. We need to address the elephant in the room here. The Doctor's time gadget. The penis detector? Yes. Oh, boy. It's dick um, machine. I don't know. There's a lot of different (laughs) names that you can give it. The dick divining rod? (laughs) (laughs) For a second then, Riley, I thought you were just going to say dick divine. (laughs) (laughs) A dick to foot. Wait, that's a real thing. Never mind. (laughs) <laughs> I like how in one serial they're like, oh, well, this character looks too much like a penis, but then we get a device that looks even more like one. And they're like, oh, it's fine. It was a very fancy piece of equipment. It was uh, designed by a novelty cake company. <laughs> <laughs> this might be the most penis heavy season we've had so far. <laughs> Are we going to put out a bonus episode ranking all the seasons <laughs> by that criteria? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Probably not. Okay. One thing I do want to point out is while we have this device out and Joe and the doctor get into Bessie, I love the music that plays. Yes, yes, yes. When they're doing that whole thing, I was like, when they go into Superdrive and it even speeds up all the more. Oh, the whole Benny Hill sequence of driving. Yes. I will say this, and I'll apply this to the entire serial. It seems like Dudley had some time off and came back wanting to write music again. Into the display yes. of the synthesizer, and I'm I'm all for it. It's a much better blend of the two. Like he still uses synth, but he also actually writes some music. This is the balance that I needed this entire time. Yeah, he's playing melodies and not just making weird noises. That's probably why that what I like to call the victory music. I don't know if that <laughs> little bit that he did like before the drive. When I heard that, I was like, "Whoa, this it's like a little ditty. It's like a fully melodic phrase." What is going on here? <laughs> that little jaunty tune that he does when Stu and Ruth yes. do that little dance. Yeah. yeah. Yes. It, it threw me off and I'm like, this is so out of place. And I wonder, is it because of that or the fact that he's, as Dom was saying, trying to write music again? I almost wondered whether maybe because he's been off for two serials that he kind of thought, well, shit, I've got to up my game. They're bringing <laughs> other people in. <laughs> maybe. This isn't a guaranteed job anymore. As we... Out of this, I love how the master's plan to make sure he isn't recognized is to come in in this really over-the-top radiation suit. (laughs) It's like a Homer Simpson plan. Yeah, and then while trying (laughs) to wear this, as, you know, the machine goes haywire, he's screaming out, come, Kronos, come. That's it, dude. You know, stay under the radar. That'll definitely help. I think he just had to get to the point where he could summon Kronos and then who cares if unit recognize him after that. That takes us into episode two. Where I learned the terminology I've never thought I would hear before. Chrononivorous or chronovores. 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 Chronocurious. I don't know. (laughs) Is that what someone who thinks they might be chronosexual is, but they're not entirely sure yet? (laughs) Yes, I think so. One thing I do want to point out first is Avengers Endgame totally stole from this serial. You've got Stuart being aged by like 40 plus years, and then you have Benton who eventually gets turned into a baby, which is exactly what happened to Ant-Man in Avengers Endgame because they messed with time. Just throwing that out there. (laughs) That's a fair comparison. And speaking of the aging, the old age makeup, not bad. Not bad job. Yeah, that was actually pretty good. He already had that enormous mustache and hair, so, you know. (laughs) Better than what they did in Supernatural. (laughs) (laughs) We've definitely seen worse in more modern stuff. Absolutely. 
I will say I was a little disappointed in the Stuart is suddenly aged by quite a bit plot thread because it just suddenly fixed itself. Mm. I was thinking that was something they were going to save until the end, but nope. Well, that's so they can later throw the Benton curveball. Benton as a baby is much cuter than Stu as an old man. <laughs> <laughs> they both poop themselves. I don't know what you want. <laughs> <laughs> can we talk briefly for a moment about Joe? What I love with Joe here is as soon as they mention the name Thaskalos, she's the one who vocalizes that it's the Greek word for master. And if you think back one season, the doctor chastised her on not knowing her Latin when he was going by the name Magister. And yet here she gets it right. And Greek is less learned than Latin. Yeah, and Magister even sounds remotely like master, whereas... Mm -hmm. Heracles or whatever it is, like does not. I would not sit <laughs> yeah. there and connect the two. Baskalo sounds like a place you're going to go on vacation. What I love is the master had escaped, right? And then he's just chilling, drinking some scotch or something, smoking a cigar. Another one of those instances where he's just like, I can just take my old sweet time. No one can find me here. They're never going to look for me in the place they think I'm not going to be, basically. Also, can we talk about Lethbridge Stewart? He comes in and he takes over the matter from Dr. Cook and Prentice or whatever other guy's name was, Proctor, maybe, something. Yeah. Dr. Cook's minion. And he just comes in and just quotes a bunch of legislation. I'm like, yeah, good for you, dude. They're not going <laughs> to know this shit. You could be like, yes, according to the third passage of the seventh convention <laughs> on what have you. And they would just be like, yeah, sure. Okay, yeah, you're in charge. As in, my favorite part is when he's like, I need this, I need this, I need all the firepower I could possibly have. <laughs> I'm like, Brigadier, I get it, but like, calm down. <laughs> Probably having flashbacks to the demons and having to face Bok or Azal again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I enjoyed, and I'm kind of jumping all over the place, but, and yes, I'm going to highlight the whole thing that happened with Benton towards the end of this episode. Oh, yeah. And you sit there and you're like, please, Benton, don't fall for it, don't fall for it. And he doesn't. And I loved it. And I love the fact that it's because he was like, the Brigadier would never call me like, chap or something like that my dear fellow my dear fellow sorry i like the fact that it gave the impression that he had fallen for it and then nope he circled around i thought that was really well done and gave benton the good moment that kind of immediately got ruined but that's okay well yeah it's because it's you know sergeant benton's terrible horrible no good very bad day like the brigadier <laughs> has had before and the line delivery by the master at the end that when he says that is the oldest trick in the book was just stellar. <laughs> I also want to talk about Kronos here yeah, because you never want to talk about chairs anymore. I know. <laughs> well, it was Julie with the chairs. Yes. <laughs> that was me. We haven't seen Kronos yet, right? Uh no, no, no. Kronos we get an is old in the dude. next episode. Yeah, but we start hearing about Kronos and this concept of interstitial time. We get a ton of mythology spun at us by the Doctor and basically telling us Kronos is a danger to the entire universe. It's very, um, almost melodramatic. And um, when we get cuts to Atlantis to kind of start planting the seed of that story and where Kronos will eventually be manifested, all of those scenes are filmed basically with Vaseline over the lens. It's a very weird look. And I don't know, I guess it's to, I, I'm looking to my film people here, Don and Riley. I, I'm guessing the intent is to 
It's to make it look kind of dreamlike. Yeah. If you ever watch old Star Trek, anytime there is a female character, especially <laughs> one that they're going to have Kirk sleep with, they always have that stuff over the lens to make it look all diffused and they're kind of glowy. Combined with the light, melodic, like scenes of a woman, like, oh, <laughs> over it as well. That happens. We get that again in the end when Kronos shows up and rains hell down on Atlantis. Or I suspect I'm overselling that given what we actually see, but. Kronos is so amazing that they cannot appear in focus. <laughs> so yeah, I was going to say, they did the same thing so Kronos doesn't look too shit. The night Kronos <laughs> went down to Atlantis. <laughs> I think it's really important that we note this. So I know we've talked a lot this season about improvement in the character of the Doctor, and I think nothing shows that more than his compassion towards Stuart. He is so nice to him. Yeah, but he calls him, he literally calls him like old chap after the guy has been prematurely <laughs> aged. He calls everyone old chap. Yeah, but come on, man. Have some consideration. <laughs> but he basically says, look, I don't know if we can do anything to help you with this, but I will do everything I possibly can. Well, words to that effect. And I see him being a lot more mean about it in yeah. season eight. Oh, He's yeah. definitely not mean or angry about it. Why'd you get yourself aged, stupid? <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, Stuart. <laughs> yeah, that's totally what we would have gotten before. No, you're absolutely right. He is much better here and he listens to Joe a bit more. Yes. And I also want to touch on the master and his character a little in this episode because we have him imitating Lethbridge Stewart's voice, which is very well done. I mean, it's obviously done in post, but the lip syncing is perfect. But it's very clear he doesn't actually intend to kill Benton. And I was sitting there wondering, does he actually have some level of affection for the unit folks? I think so. Maybe. I think after going, you know, toe to toe with them for an entire season, he actually respects them a little bit. Or maybe it's just kind of a cat playing with a mouse situation. Maybe. The master brings us to the end of the episode when he runs back to experiment. And we cut to Atlantis, then cut back to the lab where the Atlantan priest appears. And that is that cliffhanger. And we're into episode three. The master has exchanged one old dude for another one now. <laughs> <laughs> and Crassus, the guy who comes through, did anyone else find it was weird that he just wasn't at all phased by any of this? A little bit, yeah. He was and wasn't. I think since he was praying to Kronos, he was anticipating something happening. And there are certain instances where he's like, something crazy is happening, aliens or whatever. He had a few moments where he kind of seemed off and things like that. So eh, yes and no. I also thought the guy who played Crassus was doing his very best RSC Shakespeare performance. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I was really reminded of that scene in Blackadder the Third with the Shakespearean actors. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> it was not great. I also had to love that moment when they were like, Ruth, Joe, you have to stay over here and, and stay undercover. And it's like, <sighs> always the women folk just being like, oh, you have to be over here because you can't take care of yourself. Yeah, sorry. Those are things I'll note. <laughs> you guys don't care. It's fine. I honestly didn't take a note of it. So it just seemed a little out of context to me. Fine. We'll just move on. We can talk about Kronos now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Kronos. How disappointing. <laughs> How disappointed I was. Kronos is the time monster, and the time monster looks like a member of Cirque du Soleil. <laughs> <sighs> 
so And it's like the wish version of Cirque du Soleil. And the worst thing about it is it's like the look is not intimidating or scary. But then they have to have them flapping around like the San Diego chicken at a baseball game. <laughs> the movement wasn't even, they thought it was terrifying or, or spooky. It wasn't. It just looked like a very strange music video, psychedelic music video with someone dressed up as a chicken. This was where I very much started going, what is happening? Because before you just had some odd but fun directorial choices. And now we have a person in a bird suit shot out of focus, <laughs> which I understand, you know, they don't have a budget to do, you know, anything terribly impressive. But what is the idea here? What is the concept? But it's just it's a bird person. <laughs> and the flapping around it just doesn't look right. It looks ridiculous. All I can think of is like there's a person tied up and stuffed inside the costume and blindfolded with the mask put on the costume head on top and he's trying to get away and he's like <laughs> flapping around. It doesn't make any sense at all. And Kronos just devours the incompetent old administrator, Dr. Percival, in this flapping and it's almost Link and you miss it. You don't even know what's going on. Yeah. I think yeah. I did miss that. Like, Where did that other guy go? I forgot. I somehow missed the fact that he was devoured by the bird. Yep, Kronos ate him. They could have had some irony there if that guy also had a piece of Mr. Wing's chicken. <laughs> <laughs> An instance of Mr. Chin syndrome. Yes. Yes. And there's also one other thing talking about the strangeness, because this is where we really like before the setup to everything. This is a little, a little strange, like super drive. It's a bit silly and weird. And then we have a little bit of the time dilation. We have Cronus's reveal. And then also moving back to Stu and everyone else, the doctor starts putting together some sort of MacGyver nonsense. And <laughs> I oh my love God. that. But see, here's the thing. I'm fine with the spirit behind it. His there's a discussion of like, oh, he's just doing this to get our mind off things. But then the thing actually starts to work. When he puts a cup of tea on top of it. Yes. And then I'm like, okay, I know the show has never been high on being like very focused on scientific accuracy and realism. We have that whole wibbly wobbly thing, but that was damn ridiculous. It's not scientific and it's not mystical. It's just Here's Pertwee playing with a wine bottle and putting some crap on it. I don't know. It's magic, I guess. That's the thing. Like the So many things in this serial are just magic. Not science fiction, just magic. I think with a lot of what we've seen before, even when it's not necessarily grounded in science fact, there's a certain element of suspension of disbelief. And then you see this thing that, to your point, wine bottle, couple of forks, corkscrew, cup of tea, you can't suspend your disbelief with that. So this is supposed to disrupt this college institute level piece of technology. What's stopping like some busboy in the back of a kitchen accidentally disrupting up that machine if it just takes a bottle of wine, some tea, some forks, and so on. <laughs> As I sit here and the thing that I was most worried about was the fact that Benton didn't get a sandwich because the brigadier looked at him and was like, you don't get some. I was like, <laughs> how rude. That was kind of rude. <sighs> Happens again and again. That is a recurring theme of Benton being denied food. <laughs> and people being denied sandwiches, let's not forget, happened to Joe and the Sea Devils. Yes, it's really unfortunate. We also get introduced to Dalios in this. I like Dalios. He's the wise sage old man but he says really weird things and you're like is that a wise thing that you just said or just a really <laughs> weird thing that you said i can't tell 
<laughs> with regard to the scenes in Atlantis, since you started with Delios, Julie, does anyone else think that that would have looked amazing in the Hartnell era, in black and white? But you wouldn't have gotten the epicness that was the shirtless hippias. I mean, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Wasn't there some shirtlessness in, was it the Keys of Marinus? There was some in the Keys of Marinus, but there was also some in the other pirate one. The smugglers. smugglers. Yeah, that one. <laughs> the other bad Hello pirate one. Hello and welcome back to Thirsting in the Fourth Dimension with Julie <laughs> and the other three. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> but you wouldn't get the glisten that you do when you're in color. Ah, uh, okay. All right. I didn't realize it was so uh, so nuanced. Yes, I digress. I like the costuming in Atlantis. I like yes. that you have very different outfits for different ranks and different people. So king and queen have obviously the much finer dressing. You have, I think, more folks from like the temple area in like Crassus and them. And then you had the soldiers had a whole different outfit. So I really liked how they differentiated all of those. And they weren't all dressed alike. It's as if they had their own culture because one of the things I always say in some of these is when you have an alien race and they all wear the exact same thing. I'm like, do they actually wear the same thing? <laughs> so I like that they gave them a lot more character. Yeah, the only one I did struggle with was Hippias, who looked a lot more Egyptian than he did Greek, I thought. But yeah. beyond that, he I would He could agree. have been Egyptian that then moved to Greece. They still talk to each other. That's true. That's very yes. true. I always thought he looked like the bassist from Spinal Tap. <laughs> Missing the mustache, though. Mm, you gotta have the mustache. We need to start talking about Yates bringing this battalion <laughs> in all the weaponry. His convoy, yeah. His yeah. convoy. <laughs> convoy and the master with his eye watch. <laughs> I loved that, actually. I thought it was all really fun. The playing with time by just being like, all right, I'm going to find this jousting horse. I'm like, really, master, you thought that a horse joust against a truck? would win i'm just saying i mean it was enough to drive him off the road yeah but that's because yates is dumb <laughs> and also how did they get stuck in the mud and then five minutes later they were no longer stuck in the mud magic <laughs> yeah that was magic. not well done i would like to say because i missed it earlier and i'm allegedly supposed to be keeping track of this we do need to add one to the i'll explain later count it's an honorary one because joe says it oh it counts she says the doctor will explain later so I wanted to count that when they were all being slow-mo. You said he actually doesn't explain it later? I don't think he does. Even better. Or he does. I mean, there's a lot of gobbledygook nonsense explanations in this serial. And so we have our bombing of the Yates Brigade, the Yates Convoy, and then there's a wonderful, wonderful character touch there by the Brigadier as he's trying to get Yates on the radio. He then goes from asking for Yates to Mike. Nice, subtle touch. And that is so poignant, particularly after Benton realized the master was the master and not the brigadier when he referred to him as my dear fellow, breaking military etiquette. And here the brigadier is so distraught at the potential death of Yates, he breaks military etiquette. That's really, really well done. And from that poignant scene, episode four, we get our country yokel. Yeah, we do. There is one final thing I want to say about episode three, and it has one of my favorite lines of the entire season where the master says, now get on with it, you 17th century poltroons about the roundheads. I just love that line so much. I think we should all endeavor to use poltroon as an insult more. All right. Episode four. 
country yokel, gotta get a TARDIS out of a ditch. Everyone survives the bombing, it looks like, but they're all pretty much banged up pretty good. And we see the inside of the Master's TARDIS, and we find out that his TARDIS console doubles as a chocolate fountain at the Golden Corral <laughs> on the weekends. <laughs> I was thinking something similar. I was like, wow, that central column is interesting. I was just sort of looking at the roundels and going, what is this? What's happening here? And then to my double horror, we finally get in our TARDIS and it looks the same. Not only is that really cheap to use the same sets. Why did you do that? <laughs> I'm so glad it only lasts this one serial. Absolutely. I do like Crass. This is response to it when he goes into the TARDIS and he says, so vast a space inside a small box. I'm like, that is a nice take on it's bigger on the inside. Yeah, it is. That is. It would have been a nice little callback to Katarina if they had him call it a temple or something. But I don't think they cared at this point. Unfortunately, none of us really care about Katarina. <laughs> Episode four has not exactly the strongest of the six in the series, but it does have the most repeated use of the word coccyx of any of them. Of any True. Doctor Who serial. So it's got that going for it. Yeah. And it does have two particularly good bits. Of course, we'll talk about the cliffhanger in a little bit. But <laughs> Yes, we will. I do actually like the, I called it like the infinite loop. It wasn't quite an infinite loop, but the TARDIS being inside the other TARDIS. The Doctor's TARDIS is inside the Masters and the Masters is inside the Doctors. They're both inside each other. Just the way the Master wants it. That's nasty. <laughs> That is so nasty. I'm just saying. <laughs> you were waiting to do that, weren't you? <laughs> the doctor said they're both inside each other. I just bawled over laughing. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. After the dream sequence of the master at the beginning, I'm like, oh my God, this is too good. Hello and welcome to Watchers in the Sexy Dimension. <laughs> I mean, it's not just us. There were comments that were made in the episode. Like, she's very temperamental when she's aroused, isn't she? <laughs> what? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, not just that, but in the next episode, the master's seduction scene of the queen, there was a lot of layers to that language that he was saying. Yeah, I think that the rating has officially gone up in Doctor Who. We were talking about how weird and wild things are now. They're getting a little funky, a little sexy. <laughs> Obviously, there's the verbal sparring between the master and the doctor, and I don't even really need to know what all is said during all of that, and it doesn't even need to resolve anything. Just the fact that they're verbally sparring is all that you need. Yeah, for most of the episode. <laughs> yes. And I know that much to Don's delight, them listening into each other and talking over the screen in the TARDIS is used again in The Curse of Fatal Death. Yes, it's very reminiscent. <laughs> obviously, this is where Moffat got that from. Oh, obviously. <laughs> so we go and move over from outside of the TARDIS to Ruth and Sue and all of them and trying to figure out a way to try to help the Brigadier and all of them, right? Yeah, they're all frozen. Yeah. And... <laughs> Benton is like, well, what about me? And Rue says, you just stand there and look pretty. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me check that off of my things. Julie is going to say bingo card here. <laughs> you know me so well. I just had a feeling. <laughs> and immediately before I even saw anything else happen, I was like, uh-oh, something bad is going to happen to Benton. And it's something bad, but it's adorable because we get Benton, baby. <sighs> I love it so much. It's my favorite. This episode also has the repeated attempts at padding through trying to unfreeze Lethbridge Stewart and the unit <laughs> troops, who were, I think, really put on a freeze just so they didn't have to do anything with them for the rest of the story. Absolutely. This episode is very much 
padding. Anything that happens could have been resolved in about five minutes if they had to do this as a four-parter. Finally, we get the confrontation between the Doctor and the Master where he boasts about Kronos being his slave, sends the Doctor off into the vortex and basically flings the Doctor's TARDIS out in cliffhanger. And not much happens this episode. Interesting about that cliffhanger going into episode five is... At first, I was like, okay, the stakes are a little bit higher than usual because the doctor is actually outside of time. He's outside of his TARDIS. And then it gets solved by the press of a button in episode five. And that made me so mad. If we're going to make it look like the stakes are really high, then keep the stakes really high. But as we so often do in the third doctor era, the cliffhanger gets immediately resolved within like 40 seconds into the next episode. There's something with really good dramatic stakes, and then it's just. Nothing. Oh, he's back inside. He was in the time vortex with nothing, but it's fine now. Okay. What I do like here, though, is we learn a little bit more about the TARDIS. I guess it's some new lore in that we find, A, I think the serial is the first time it's mentioned that the TARDIS is sentient to some extent. And B, this is the first time we hear about its telepathic circuits, which relay the Doctor's thoughts back to Jo so that she can find the button that she needs to press. I like a little bit of new TARDIS lore. I do as well. I have something to say about the music that comes up when we go to Atlantis. Go for it. Oh my gosh, we have melody. (laughs) Even though it's with a synth, we have melody. It's not slapping in the face. And it fits the ambiance in the royal court. And I enjoyed it for once. This is what I've been missing. And particularly in that scene, it was also really well done. And the queen has a real left cat. I loved that. Ingrid Pitt shows up. Yes, it's Ingrid Pitt with a cat. What more can you want? I would say that the only thing that was disappointing to me about this is why couldn't we have gotten to Atlantis an episode earlier, two episodes earlier, instead of like when we got to it here in the fifth, I'm like, oh man, we only have two episodes of the six episode serial in Atlantis. That's a little disappointing. Yeah, structurally, this is a bit of a mess. But this story does have something for everyone once we get to Atlantis. I mean, it's got Hippias and his repeated toplessness for Julie, and then we've got the Queen for the lads. Yeah. It's so funny. Everyone is talking about, oh, Ingrid Pitt. And again, the only thing I've seen her in was when we covered the House House That Dripped Blood. Blood. Yeah. That's it. So I'm like, sorry, guys, I can't comment on Ingrid Pitt. (laughs) I mean, it just looks great here. What can I say? (laughs) She has that lovely accent. She does. Which no one else has. So how do we fit in this Atlantis with Underwater Menace, Atlantis? As well as the one that Azal mentions that he destroyed in the Demons. We've had three Atlantises now. I'm trying to maybe figure out there's like a chronology of Atlantises and maybe we could do it like that. Or Atlantis has been around three separate times and keeps getting destroyed. You're trying too hard. Maybe there's different Atlantises. I mean, you've got a Rome in Italy. You've got a Rome in Georgia. (laughs) <laughs> maybe there's Atlantis is all over the place. Or maybe Kronos didn't quite destroy it. I mean, we don't see it like sink or anything here. We just see it empty at the end. Maybe Azal, who just boasts about destroying Atlantis, didn't really destroy it. And the final demise of Atlantis is in the underwater menace at the hands of my boy, Professor Zaroff. <laughs> I like to think it rises up powerful and then it gets destroyed. And then it rises up again and then it gets destroyed. And it's just constantly... Like the beginning things of Futurama. (laughs) That's how it goes. (laughs) My biggest regret about this story, since it involves Atlantis, is the master did not say, nothing in the world can stop me now. That would have been a nice That is a big regret. I am curious 
as to why the queen's reaction to the master was so heightened. I get that he has like maybe some sort of aura around him, but really you get all like wet for him because he has the bearing of a god. <laughs> what are we doing? And sorry, I just had to throw it out there because we're going to get to a whole seduction scene. For one, he's a whole 10 years younger than the king. <laughs> 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 no, in all fairness, he he looks more youthful without looking young. He looks more virile than the king and stronger. And he's more confident. He's more direct. And as you said before about the king, he just says stuff and you're wondering, is that wise or is that just nonsense? The master is very clear in his language. So help me understand what's going on with Galileo. So she's married to the king. Maybe I misunderstood, but it seemed like there was this thing with her and Hippias and maybe she would be with him when the king dies. I don't think it was when the king dies. I think that she had been with Hippias before she married the king. Mm-hmm. Uh, there you go. They had some history. Yeah. Got it. I saw it as like the master showed up and suddenly he was a competitor for the queen's future affections. But obviously I misread that. That was ancient history between them. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> So the seduction scene, I mean, while we're talking about the queen's love life, we might as well talk about that for a moment. Go for it. Just as I mentioned before, it's really awesome to see the master try to do a seduction because he is a charming son of a bitch, isn't he? And he's handsome. He really is. Yeah, he is handsome. Yeah. He's got a, like a, yeah. he's got a good demeanor and just, he's very suave. He's more handsome than the doctor. Oh, 100%. 100%. It was a wonderful scene because have we seen a seduction scene in Doctor Who to this point yet? I do not recall. I remember some flirting. We've had Nero's terrible attempts at seducing Barbara. Oh, yeah, yeah. Nah, That's, <laughs> no, that doesn't count. We had the first Doctor in the Aztecs. Oh. Are we not counting that? That's flirting, though, wasn't it? I don't know. What is the difference between flirting and a seduction that's a good question. Success? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go ahead and talk about the change-up for Joe, also known as Jojo Grant. <laughs> very, very quickly before we get into that, do you think they did the deed? I think that the queen would hold out until the king was actually dead. Okay. Yeah, although she didn't want the king dead. She just wanted the power. I think she had enough of a backbone not to give in so easily. It wasn't just him trying to get with the queen for his own purposes. She was also playing a game as well. Yes, she was. Very much so. Okay, good. All right, so Riley, you wanted to talk about Jojo Grant. Yes, Jojo Grant. Great makeover. The Atlantean makeover for her. She looks great. It's the hair. Yeah, she looks looks stunning. Yeah, she's fantastic in it. I don't know where all that hair came from. That's true. Extensions. They have have extensions in Atlantis. Very advanced. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the Atlantean wig industry was well known in the ancient world. Galileo's hair, that's all a weave, man. <laughs> I did love the dress that she had on. It was so much better than that brown and yellow dress that she had on earlier. So definitely an improvement. It had its issues, though. There was one point where she very nearly fell out of the dress. And I suspect if Paul Bernard thought he could have got away with that at 6.45 on a Saturday evening, he would have kept that in. Uh... Men. <laughs> Says the one who's <laughs> always talking about topless guys and, <laughs> and Jamie upskirts. You're just as bad as us. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's just I had to do it all by myself. Uh. <laughs> yeah. 
That's fair. One of the things that I always enjoy when the master is in a serial is that oftentimes there's a moment where, because he, I always compare him to a cat. He walks around with this air of confidence, feels so assured that his plan is going the way he wants it to go. And then when a twist happens and a doctor gets advantage over him, he has that shocked look on his face. And he does that so perfectly in this episode. It cracks me up. He's like a startled cat when his eyes just like, <laughs> boom, just pop out of his head and it's so funny it's such a great reaction shot and his eyebrows that scene where they cross each other in the corridor yes, yes. oh 100 so that's one of the great things about the master when you see him have to deal with that because it's just funny to see someone so full of themselves so sure of themselves get completely just blindsided it's hilarious yeah and delgado is great at showing that oh yeah absolutely, absolutely. so we get to our cliffhanger apparently the minotaur is going to be there or a minotaur Yes. Which leads us into episode six. But wow, this really blends different parts of Greek stuff. I mean, we talked about Plato and between Kronos and the Minotaur, we've got some Hesiod in there. It doesn't quite jive, but most people wouldn't care. So this Minotaur, I was okay with it. Well, he was shirtless. (laughs) (laughs) I just wish they'd done more with it. It was basically like, here's a man, put the head of a bull on his head, and that was it. No eyes, which may have been for the best. (laughs) When we previously saw a Minotaur in The Mind Robber, they very deliberately didn't show us the full monster. Mm -hmm. And it was far more effective, I think, as a result. Absolutely. But it's Darth Vader, so that's kind of cool. It is Darth Vader. Wow. Yeah. And we get to see the Doctor doing bullfighting. Yes. Best Matador impression. There has been so much Star Wars in this season. Absolutely. And Star Wars hadn't even happened yet. All those English actors, you know, early 70s, they're getting their start before they get casted and used in 77. Yeah, the movie that no one thought would do well. We have our Minotaur fight. Poor hippie ass. Oh, yes. I was so sad. He takes on the Minotaur, dies, so we don't have to worry about him anymore. Plot-wise, he's sorted, but I liked the guy. Feels like such a shame just to have him killed by the Minotaur slinging him round. I guess we had to show some threat, you know? And at least he died fighting as opposed to just being killed by Cronus in the end like everyone else. That's true. While all of this is going on, the master stages his coup and names himself king. I'm thinking, why did everyone just go along with this? Was there no (laughs) loyalty whatsoever to Delios amongst the people? Certainly not amongst the guards. It's the fastest coup ever. He killed some of them. So that always speed things along is when you start killing people, people start to listen to you because they don't want to be killed. And since the queen was kind of on board, she probably mentioned it to the guards. So that would be my guess. I think there was a lot more going on back there that they just were just like skimmed over and said was not important. Did seem to happen in about five minutes, though. Yes. Yeah. If that. And the newfound love affair also ends pretty quickly as they have a quarrel where the <laughs> master, always the tender lover, says, you must obey my love. <laughs> <laughs> he wants to be her master. When you hear him say that, I was like, is that a Kenny Loggins song? Obey my love? It <laughs> sounds like one. <laughs> We have to talk about this. So I know we're jumping all around. There's so much that happens in episode six. So many different things. It's to make up for the nothing of episode four. Yes, yes. We have to talk about the Doctor's monologue that you referenced earlier about the Hermit with Joe. The monologue itself is okay, but the thing that I enjoyed the most about it was the character motivation behind it. That was really touching and really tender. 
him asking yes. her after he said that, like, do you feel a little bit better? And that way he delivers it. It's like, Pertwee, they wrote you so bad. They could have had you doing this all along. Like, the way he speaks there, it's such a wonderfully delivered line there. There's so much caring behind it. It's amazing. And that was probably the moment where Barry lets his obsession with Buddhism really shone through the most. We have that moment between them. And then the guards bring in Delius. Ugh. It just knocked him on the head. <laughs> Dead. <laughs> like, he's treated so shittily. I mean, he's been their king for however long, and the guards just sling him around. You would think he'd be more resilient. You know, he was like 500 plus years old. You'd think he would be a bit more resilient. <laughs> he's managed to survive that long. Very obviously in the twilight of his extremely long life, but you would think maybe he could survive a bit more the handle of a trident or the side of a trident to the head. I admit, I was a little confused. I'm like, did the guard just kill him? Because he just looked like he just kind of, you know, shoved him. So I thought maybe the master did something to kill him off screen. I don't know. It looked like the side of the trident hit him on the head, but it did seem a light touch to actually kill him. But when we get to that throne room... The master holding court. And the queen finds out she is pissed. Oh, she's so bad. And I love her expressions and her reaction was fantastic. Ingrid Pitt is great in this. She's dressed in a way where she's a bit of eye candy, but there's a lot of substance to her character as well, which is awesome. It's not what you get in 80s Doctor Who, where you have female characters there just to look good in certain times. She actually has substance. Yes. And I really like that about her. Let's talk about the inevitable the Master Summoning Kronos. Oh, jeez. Everybody do the chicken dance. <laughs> Everyone do the chicken dance, and ho, hey, it's the typical story of the Master not being able to control something that he thought he had control over once again. The best part of that entire scene is at the end of it, when he uh, decides to scurry on out. Joe doing the neck hold, the grah, that tackle. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> she was awesome. Yeah, she's great. But... Ugh, Kronos. I think having so much of Kronos here, flapping around, destroying Atlantis, I don't think that was done very well. No. Nope. It was just not effective. And I get what they were trying to do, but I think the ambition outweighed what they could actually realize on screen. I did find that final scene of Galea standing alone in the ruins of Atlantis oh. pretty haunting, though. That was very effective. That was more effective than almost any of the rest of it. So she does good work. I was going to say, this leads us into the final confrontation between the Doctor and the Master before we end up in front of Kronos again. We have that. And I love Joe being handcuffed to the Master's TARDIS. Kinky. Just call me Master. <laughs> I don't know what else to say on that. <laughs> All you have to say is time ram, bam alam. <laughs> <laughs> time ram thank you ma'am is that what you're trying to get to? okay he's threatening the time ram and the master calls his bluff rightly so because he's totally not going to do it until joe does it and yet it doesn't kill them even though they were like yeah it's going to well guess what it didn't how convenient for them put them in front of Kronos. oh that cso we've seen worse yeah but with joe's dress it didn't do so well with Joe's It did dress. kind of make the dress fade out. I just imagine how that scene would have gone if they had that discussion and Cronus still looked like a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> I 
think this last scene with Cronus is the most effective Cronus has been in this entire serial. Yes, that absolutely agree with that. <laughs> yeah, no question. <laughs> I love it. Oh, the fact that she takes like a human form here and and she's just like massive and talking to him. I love it. This entire concept is great. I wish you could have found some other way of representing Cronus earlier, and then it would have been even better. So at least it ends with a bang. I agree with that. And what I really love about this scene is the time Ram releases Kronos from the Master's control, she owes the Doctor a debt of gratitude, and she plans on keeping the Master in eternal torment, and the Doctor, always being compassionate, asks for his freedom. So even after everything, he wants the Master to face, I don't want to say human justice, but justice of our universe, which I think shows the soft side of the Doctor. And, of course, the master escapes because that's what he does. As always. I did like him begging, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was good to see. Okay, Julie, I know you're dying to get back to baby Benton and what happens next there. I think it's brilliant. So we come back and they're finally trying to fix things and they end up fixing Benton as well. And as it should go, if he's going from baby to life-size... Well, his clothes no longer fit, so we do end with a naked Benton. <laughs> I love the setup for that, where Lethbridge Stewart goes, where on earth is Sergeant Benton? At which point he <laughs> appears naked. Oh, it's so good. What's funny is there is so much bizarre craziness between this scene and the end of episode four where we get the Benton baby that I had totally forgotten that he was a baby. <laughs> and then to add on to all the insanity that had happened for then that ending, I just was like, wow, this is like the weirdest, craziest Doctor Who serial that I've seen so far in our watch through. And, and actually, I think that's the funniest, best ending since, and I think better than the end of Inferno. Mm, okay. Just Benton's face when he asked for clothes, his expression is hilarious. So good. So, so good. Yeah, this story's so weird. At times it's played as a comedy, and maybe it almost feels like the entire story should have been played as more of a comedy. And then you're right, though, because at times I feel like the master in this entire story was more of a bastard than he has ever been. He was like downright vicious at times. And the ending in episode six, our big climax ending, there was a lot of high drama. It wasn't your normal kind of like, oh, let's save the world. There was like personal stakes involved. Where we yeah. really thought that people were going to be harmed, like very important characters. Very quickly before we wrap up the story, it does feel like for the last few seasons, they've been giving us these bigger bombastic season finales ever since the war games. Because you had the war games, Inferno, the demons, and now this. And before that, you had Wheel in Space. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's go ahead and rate this bad boy. So this time round, we will start with Don. I think I said it at the beginning that after watching this serial, I'm still not entirely sure my exact feelings about it. In that, if we have to use our numbers, it greatly waffles between being a two and an eight at the same time. <laughs> One inside of the other. It's incredibly weird. The pacing is slightly bonkers because you don't even get to Atlantis until nearly the end and you have essentially a filler episode. It's also surprisingly sexual from the names, from the way characters act. You know, normally there's not that in Doctor Who and this is all Tom Tits and bare ass Bentons. It's weird. <laughs> so it's not good, but it's enjoyable. 
And I think that's it's kind of important. So I'm going to give it six and a half surprisingly firm Tom tits out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Julie, you're up next. Oh, boy. I enjoyed this cereal. It has its faults. The main faults being Kronos was just really not spectacular and just the ping pongy nature of the plot and not really making any sense. However, there were some vast improvements, namely the music. Oh my gosh, the music. We've returned to some better days, I'm hoping. And obviously with having our entire unit crew, I rather enjoyed that as well. So I am going to go with somehow seven and a half naked Bentons out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> Riley, you're up next. Well, this one is not just weird, like the web plan, but this is downright silly weird with everything happening and the humor, which isn't a bad thing at all. The Chronos setup was incredibly wacky and felt off, but if you brush that off, you have a lot of good things in this one. The unit gang is back and they all get their moments. The master is absolutely on fire in this one. The doctor and Joe get some tender moments, and the drama at the end was incredibly heightened. It really felt like a new who over the top dramatic episode. And it was interesting at the start. I didn't think I was going to like it because it seems a bit slow and we have this crazy setup, which like I said, I don't really think works, but when we get to Atlantis, things really are starting to rev up and it gets really good. So the plot is nuts, but the character moments make it worth it in my opinion. So I give it seven and a half chrononivorous diets out of 10. <laughs> Excellent. And for me, I really enjoy this. It's not good, per se, but it's fun. It's bonkers. There are a lot of really weird notes to it. Balancing that out, there's a ton of stuff that doesn't entirely make sense. I wish I could understand the concept of interstitial time, for example. But to me, that's just a bunch of technobabble. I wish we didn't have scenes like the Doctor building his gadget out of bric-a-brac and it inexplicably working. There's just something about it. I was never bored at any point during this. I couldn't take my eyes off of it. I thought Joe was great. The use of the master was great. I love that he has his own assistance in this, even if they do realize he's a bad sort pretty quickly. It's just a lot of fun. So balancing that with some of the aspects that I didn't like, Kronos flapping around and the Kronos costume in particular, I'm going to align with Don on this one and give it six and a half baby Bentons. Yay! which gives us a story average of seven, which isn't bad, particularly given that this is widely recognized amongst fandom as being one of the worst Doc 2 stories of all time. All time? Eh. Certainly seen as probably the worst of the part we era. Oh, no. No, no. Oh, no, that's false. Incorrect. <laughs> well, we still have two more seasons to go after that, so we'll see what truly is by the time we get to the end of it. Anyway, with that, we've reached the end of the episode. We'll be back next time around for our Season 9 retrospective, where we'll be giving out our usual awards, looking back at our various scores and metrics, and answering questions from social media. But for now, as always, thank you very much for listening, and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippak, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Time Ram Thank You Ma'am, was recorded on Thursday the 20th of January 2022. If this is your first time listening into the show, 
All of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Watchers4D, and you can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, if you're a trophy wife, a handsome, charming, bearded stranger may not actually be an upgrade on your current husband. He may, in fact, result in the total downfall of your native land. Best to avoid.